welcome to Quirky Cooking Chats. I'm your host, Jo Witten. I'm so glad you could join me today. I'm going to be chatting today with Dr. Pran Yoganathan from the Center for Gastrointestinal Health in Sydney. Dr. Pran is a gastroenterologist and he's really interested in um, teaching his patients to embark on a journey of self-healing using the philosophy of let food be thy medicine. So this is not very common these days to see um, a gastroenterologist that is so focused on teaching his patients about nutrition. So I met Dr. Pran recently at a um, nutrition summit and um, was really interested in a lot of the things that he had to share. I thought I'd love to get him on the show to pick his brains about meat. It's a controversial topic at the moment and you may not agree with everything he says, um, but have a listen and I really encourage you to be curious and to look into these things for yourself. Um, there's so many great people that I've had on the podcast in the past that have talked about regenerative farming, um, about gut health, about all different things that are mentioned in this podcast. So scroll down to the notes below and you'll see some other podcasts that can sort of link to these issues and these subjects and maybe will help you to expand further your knowledge of this subject. Elise Comerford from Wellbelly Health also talks a lot about gut health and nutrition for gut health. So if you are looking for that side of things, have a look at the podcasts below and I've linked one of her podcasts there. Um, but we have a lot of great information out there that can really help us to make good decisions around meat and animal products and what to look for, what to use, what not to use in your cooking and also um, the whole environmental aspect of meat. If you're interested in regenerative farming and looking after the environment, then I really encourage you to have a listen to this podcast and also have a listen to the ones that I've linked below and we will have more on the subject of regenerative farming very soon. Just a reminder that if you are listening to this on a podcast app, you can also watch the videos on my YouTube channel, Quirky Cooking. So if it's a cooking podcast especially, you may wanna pop over and watch the video sometime as well. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Welcome Dr. Pran, it's so good to have you on the show. Thanks, Joe. It's a pleasure to be on your uh, podcast. It's been a long time coming and I, uh, you know, I really appreciate you having me on. Now, it was so good to hear you speak recently at the Nutrition Summit down in, where was that? Um, Kingscliff, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Um, it was a real, um, it was so good to hear you speak on so many common sense um, issues. I think a lot of things these days have gone away from the common sense viewpoint of traditional food and um, way of life and it's just so good to see um, you know people in the medical profession out there sharing you know what real food is um, because it seems to be not a common thing so much anymore am I right <laughs> yeah um, common sense is not so common um, is is what you're saying fundamentally Joan I, I, I agree with that I've always um, kind of gravitated to a uh, root course uh, uh, type type uh, approach to healthcare, I suppose, or to to, to medicine. So um, you know, whilst I'm not really into the reductionist model of of healthcare, where you're um, reducing a human body down to organ system, I do like to analyze the kind of the, the economic and social and political factors that that lead to ill health. So I'm glad you enjoyed the talk. It was kind of a miss match sort of um, uh, various <laughs> topics, but, but, but I think to understand uh, disease and human health and the deterioration of human health, we've got to look at it from that perspective. Yeah, there's so many variables. It's not just about the food you eat. Um, so can you give us a little bit of an idea of what you do and how you got into the um, more natural health side of way of thinking? Look, I, I can give you a little bit of background, uh, Joe. So I'm a uh, gastroenterologist and a hepatologist. So we fundamentally specialise in the gut, uh, the human gut and liver and pancreas, so the digestive system fundamentally. It's, a, it's quite a good specialty that we do, as, um, do, do through internal um, physician-type training. 
we're a uh, interventional or a procedural specialty. So we we diagnose disease by fundamentally looking at it with with these cameras. So it's a very objective specialty. So I've always gravitated towards objective um, uh, objective healthcare fundamentally. So with with my thinking around you know natural therapies and 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 so forth, I think you need to go back from that. I think in the healthcare sector, we're always grumbling about how there isn't enough funding and how there's an overwhelming demand and, and, and so forth. The reason for that, to me, I've always recognised as, as being fairly simple. I think the environmental system is kind of just really broken and our nutrition's really broken. As a result, we've got this huge demand on the healthcare sector. And I've always felt that pouring in money into the healthcare sector is not really the solution. And we should be really looking at preventative healthcare to um, to better the system rather than just trying to plug these gaps because I think that's a um, a dangerous situation where it essentially becomes an endless uh, void for for requirement of funding, um, especially if we don't address the root cause. So I think that's how I kind of gravitated towards preventative healthcare. When you look at prevention, a lot of prevention tends to focus around movement sleep, psychological conditioning, and uh, obviously nutrition being the big one there. So I guess that's how I kind of ended up in this space. And nutrition and the gut just ties in so well. Uh, it's really interesting, you know, we're not taught much nutrition as gastroenterologists. We're just taught the, taught the really basic aspects of it. But the further I've delved into that, that, that um, field and the more I've gotten to know people like yourself and other people like you in the space, um, the more... Um, I'm, I'm convinced that, that that is a critical part of, of the puzzle that's uh, missing, missing with regards to how we solve uh, this epidemic of disease, uh, of chronic illness. And do you find that others in your field sometimes downplay the importance of nutrition in healing? Uh, yeah, well, you know, you've, you've got an agricultural sector and a pharmaceutical sector that, that, that kind of work really closely really when you think about it you know we've um, uh, we've got a food system that's broken a pharmaceutical sector that doesn't really address that we're always just pumping out medications and and these two industries are so tied in with with medical training and there's so much conflict of interest in medical academia that that we fundamentally train a workforce of doctors uh, that don't realize that nutrition's a massive part of, of, of the puzzle, so to speak. So uh, how one is conditioned from a very early stage in their career obviously influences the way um, they practice. And any threat to the establishment is a threat to your ability as a practitioner to be able to put, put food on the table for your family, do you know what I mean? And we're such yeah. a regulated field that uh, very few people step outside the boundaries of what is perceived to be um, standard care. Um, we've got a very strong regulatory board um, and we we just need to look at the case of Dr. Gary Fetke, the orthopaedic surgeon who mm -hmm. lost his license for many years just for, for basically telling a diabetic that eating sugar wasn't a great idea and uh, the patient took that on board but the, the threat came from the Dietetics Association the complaint came from that and he lost his license for many years. So it's sort of that well even if a doctor feels that nutrition plays a role many of them feel outside their comfort zone and stepping out to talk about that we're not taught nutrition well additionally if it's a threat to your livelihood very few people do that and the thirdly you, you kind of become stuck in the rut sometimes in, in healthcare it just becomes a cycle of disease you just hand out therapeutics, you think you're doing good by the patient and on that cycle continues. But, you know, burnout is so common in the healthcare industry amongst doctors and, and dentists because I think there is this lack of um, fulfilment uh, because you never really help fix the patient if you're not dealing with the root cause of mm. why they're getting the disease in the first place. And I think a lot of people get burnt out over time. They don't necessarily recognise it as the cause for their burnout. But um, imagine just being overwhelmed by disease, which you can never really treat, um, simply just kind of smooth over and, and, and band-aid over. And, and that has to take a mental toll on the person at the other yeah. end, which is a doctor, you know? Yeah, that must be quite depressing to feel like you're just chasing your tail constantly and not a lot, getting a lot anywhere. Of, yeah, that's right. I mean, a lot of them feel that way. Suicidality is uh, really common in our industry. Really? And, 
Yeah, of course. Wow. Yeah, and easy access to drugs means that that you know one can end their own lives relatively quickly. And we've had a number of junior doctors and senior doctors take their lives. And these sort of things aren't talked about openly. That that sort of truth isn't necessarily propagated to the general population. But I think the general population needs to know. The, the more the general population knows, the more they can arm themselves to uh, to kind of take on this environment that that really. Um, is kind of stacked against them. Mm. If you have a patient who's got gut health issues, um, so do you have like a dietitian you work with that helps with a more integrative approach? Um, is that how you work it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I believe we can't work in silos and I believe that, mm. that no one person can take on the problems of the world. I think we need to build as teams. Um, so I've been able to um, partner up with a phenomenal uh, academic and, and practicing dietitian by the name of Jessica Turton. Um, and she, you know, is a very, very uh, accomplished academic, um, well-published, um, you know, world-renowned sort of research, especially in that low carbohydrate space and type 2 diabetes, even type 1 diabetes. And she's brought on, on board her team of uh, dietitians, uh, which she's sort of accumulated over time, which is Ellipse Health. And we've been able to integrate them into our practice. And we just, uh, we, we kind of take a bit of a holistic approach or a team approach to, to uh, tackling, tackling nutritional issues. That's amazing. I bet everybody out there who um, needs a gastroenterologist wants to come see you now. <laughs> um, so... Pardon. I appreciate that, and it's it's through people like yourself where I've got these sort of mediums to to reach people that the people are aware of our practice. And now we're living in the era of Zoom and you know online mm -hmm. and so forth. So we've been doing a lot of that with our dietitians. I mean, I'm still not a massive uh, fan of this sort of telehealth appointments for our patients because I'm yeah. still very cool. I like to meet the person, potentially even physically examine them, and and kind of do all of that. But but we understand that some people can't travel, some people are interstate, so we, we have catered our, our practice somewhat to, 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 uh, to that. Our dietitians do appointments from all over Australia. And so you kind of have to nowadays, don't you? You do, you do. Mm. Right, it's been yeah. on that end. What, the thing that I really want to focus on today is the effect of meat on the gut health as well as the overall health of the body and also, you know, even looking at, you know, is the human body supposed to be eating meat and is it good for us? And what are the issues around that? Because we're hearing so much now about, you know, all the scary, scary stuff on media, social media and in the news telling us that we shouldn't be eating red meat, that it's bad for us, that it's going to cause cancer. Um, you know, we're getting all sorts of, um, we're getting such a push to move away from um and animal protein and animal fats in our diet. And you and I both believe that this is a really important part of the human diet. Um, but I do get questions fairly often from readers saying, um, why do you use meat in your recipes or how much should we be eating? Shouldn't we be reducing it? Um, I'm trying not to eat any red meat. And it's because my father had bowel cancer, you know, all these kind of questions. And I know that people are approaching this with a desire to know about their health and a desire to do the right thing for the planet and for their families and, you know, for our world. But sometimes there's a lot of, well, there is a lot of confusion out there about, um, well, there's a lot of false information out there, basically. And I'd love for you to chat about um, the whole subject of eating meat from your viewpoint as a gastroenterologist and also because you've researched this so much and um, you speak so well on it so I'd love for you to share your thoughts and um, I'll just pop in with a question now and then if you want to go for it. <laughs> okay no problems Joe that, that, that's fine okay let's kind of really simplify it now scavenging was the first step for us we became very proficient scavengers of meat and part of that 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 history we still carry in our gut we've got this 
deeply acidic stomach, probably one of the most acidic stomachs that, that is found in the animal kingdom. And that is a common trait, not amongst carnivores, but amongst scavengers, things like vultures, things like uh, hyenas. So that's where our journey begins. Now, as we went from more of a fruit and fiber-based creature to something that is eating more in the way of animal source proteins and fats, this is what we term foods that are easy for, for digestion or more nutrients. There's just more nutrients packed in them. So our gut became more adept at breaking down fats and breaking down proteins, um, not just reliant on, on carbohydrates and fiber for sustenance. And over time, these foraging and scavenging behaviors turned to tool making and hunting. Farming um, took place about 10,000 years ago. We started farming. We started cultivating crop. Prior to that, we were, we were foraging and I'm sure eating fruits and, and, and plants and so forth, but we weren't farming on a large scale. So we went from these really um, nomadic species of animal um, or, or humans, which were following large grazing herds, um, uh, to, to, to being able to settle in one spot and being able to build a civilization, cities, towns, all that came from, from agriculture. So during that period, we started developing even more adaptations in our gut, the ability to process milk for once, which is lactase persistence as we started drinking the milk of animals, our ability to tolerate carbohydrates went up. So our salivary amylase, pancreatic amylase abilities went up. These are the enzymes that break down sugars. The ability for us to convert um, um, fats in plants to medium chain triglycerides went up. Uh, FADS genes, that, that's the gene that does that, sort of got selected for. So a lot of adaptations started occurring in our DNA where we were more able to deal with a plant-based life that came with farming. So our dependence on animal-based foods diminished. So what I'm trying to say is that we're not a fixed, we're, we're not a species that is fixed on a diet. And that's what I hate about some of these ideological arguments around diet that we should only eat meat or mm -hmm. should only eat plants like that. that. That's not what we are. We've we've struggled to get to where we are now. And we shouldn't just throw away that 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 history. We got to where we are and grew our brains because of meat and fat, and we became adept at farming and we became really innovative of, uh, about how we unlocked nutrients and plants. We learned to soak, ferment, sprout, cook, um, and, and we learned how to do something called genetic modification, not in a lab, but essentially through farming techniques where we started selecting for more nutritious, more tasty, um, easier to digest fruits and vegetables. So we've gone through all of this history for us to now have an argument about is meat bad or was eating vegetables or plant bad, that, that's, it, it really, it, it, um, I, I find that problematic. So I'd rather that we kind of understand our history. What are we built to eat? And the answer to that, we're built to eat everything, anything, and eating should be about nutrition and nutrients. It shouldn't be about, did I get it from animals or plants? Um, what I know from a, from a very objective perspective is the protein and the nutrients in animal source foods. It's just easier for us to access. In addition to that, the amino acid profile in, in animal-based foods is very good. So um, really, that's what it comes down to. Eating is not an ideological process, just the acquisition of nutrients and yeah. just we should just kind of look at it from that perspective, not just amino acids, but carbohydrates, uh, fats, minerals, vitamins. That's what it's about. So when someone feels that, okay, it may be good for you, but it's not good for the planet and we need to really reduce the amount of meat that we eat, how would you answer that? Okay. Yeah, sure. Um and I, I haven't forgotten your question about bowel cancer either, Joe, and I'll, I'll come back. That's okay. Yeah, I'll come back to that. Um, that's a difficult argument, Joe, and, and I think mm. you and me both know people in, 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 in the farming industry and most, most of the farmers think that that argument's ludicrous. Perhaps they yeah. can't object about it because they're farmers and it's that sort of rhetoric directly impacts their, their livelihood. But to me, the fact that we can suggest that ruminant animals are the cause of climate change is 
it really it blows my mind. There's been Same. there's been you know there's been more ruminant animals that have that have roamed this planet a thousand years ago than ever before, right? And so why is it that these animals um, are contributing to climate change now? The there is no doubt that animal agriculture has a long way to go, and I think it could be done so much better. I think that there's a lot of monocropping that goes on for wheat and soy and so forth. These foods are then used to feed poultry and, and, and cows, but we know a lot of those animals fed that way are not necessarily healthy. I think you and me both would probably agree that when you've got an animal that is consuming what it's supposed to eat, a cow that's potentially grass-fed and finished or, or goats or lamb, you, you're going to end up with a healthier animal um, and thus healthier, uh, healthier um, uh, food source for the human as well. But to me, it blows my mind that you've got corporate ent entities such as um, you know General Mills and Nestle and Kellogg's and so forth, which must have an enormous carbon footprint, um, talking about how we should we should cut out animal animal agriculture that that to me blows my mind and the argument that we should bring in fake meats or processed meats made of plant proteins um, full of additives and just processed gunk uh, as something that to replace animal agriculture doesn't make sense because again the carbon footprint of these things must be very high um, to me I think it's more about changing the way we eat for corporate gain rather than it is about our health. Uh, in addition, when you look at the carbon footprint of the healthcare sector, it's enormous, absolutely enormous. So really, unless we fix our fundamental issue of ill health, which I think can only be done, done through nutrition and exercise, then we're, we're always going to end up with a, a large carbon footprint. And I think um, there's a massive agenda at the moment. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I think there's a massive agenda to put the blame on, on farmers when mm. there are far more um, polluting entities uh, out there. I think messing around with the way farmers do things and, and, and their methods of food production can only lead to heartache. And we just need to look at countries like Sri Lanka, uh, which is my home country, where they brought in green agriculture, which is basically... Uh, getting rid of fertilizer and pesticides and so forth. And what happened? 30% drop in crop yield and they've got starvation, uh, inability to export. And, and, you know, you've got deaths and, and people dying and, and so forth in Sri Lanka of starvation. It's problematic. Um, I'm not saying that pesticide and, and, and fertilizer is the way to go, but, but we should be transitioning people from yeah. that agriculture into a more regenerative, um, sustainable model long-term. I don't think cutting this out suddenly is going to make a difference. So this is what I'd love to see the people in charge do, that, that we talk about these matters openly and incentivize farmers to uh, embrace a new new model of uh, agriculture. And that's, that's what humans have done. We, we've always been innovative about the way we've done things. And I think it's time to innovate again and, and change. And I'd love to see that coming from agriculture. Yeah, I've seen a... Um... I guess it was a meme going around on social media that really makes it just seems so clear to me. Like one side is a picture of beautiful green fields with cattle and animals like a regenerative farm, you know, with the wide variety of animal and plant life and just in their natural habitat. And the second um, picture is the monocrop sort of farm with um, people spraying glyphosate covered in white suits and hoods and you can't go onto the farm because there's all these signs saying do not enter poison and it's like which one is worse for the environment it's like oh duh yeah. <laughs> but for yeah. some reason the media seems to get across to everybody that know the the food made from these monocropped farms and the laboratory fake meat and all that is the one you need to be eating for the planet and for your health. And it's like, I guess a lot of people don't understand what's going on in the background um, yeah. and they're just believing the advertising. Absolutely. Absolutely. But yeah. It's, I mean, I was thinking about it this morning. I, I'm very blessed to live where I do in a country area. And I know almost like I know most of my farmers where I get my different meats and I know the, the owner of the trawler where I get my seafood and I know the people that grow a lot of my um, produce and I grow some of my own and I know that not everyone can do that living in a city 
Um, but I think small steps, we can start towards um, better choices and finding out where food's coming from. Um, and little by little, we can all make a change by what we buy. But yeah. Absolutely. And I think the revolution kind of begins with the people, really. If you're yep. demanding food from Coles, um, well, that's what you're going to get. And you've got these mm -hmm. large corporate entities that, that fundamentally put these uh, small grocers and butchers out of out of, um, out of out of business because, well, why? Because that's what the people demand. It's easier just to go mm -hmm. and buy your nappies and buy your cleaning products and the meat and all in one same place. But that that's we we made that we created that and i think we yeah. as people need to take responsibility for for that why is that we live in this environment now joe where everything's about convenience time instant gratification all of this sort of stuff mm -hmm. and um, really this is some of the advantages of living in the country you just got more time you just got more time yeah. people got more time for you you you're just more in touch with nature, and I, don't, I think you're less polluted by by the um, these gentrified man-made zoos that we find ourselves with in modern civilization. I'm not knocking modern civilization; there's so many benefits to it. And, um, but but are we really happier? Um, you know, everyone makes the argument we're living longer, but is that really with quality of life? Are we really living longer with the the, the better 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 lifespans we've got? We've got um, longer lifespans, but do we really have health spans? So I'd like to see more of a, a push to people going out into the rural communities. I think um, I'm not saying you should pick up farming, but if you if you can even buy a small plot of land and incentivize people to just to be a little bit self-sufficient, run a few goats, grow their own vegetables. Mm. I, I think their health will improve. And I think over time, people need to start supporting the, um, the 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 produce or or, or um, animal based foods where where it's being done correctly and over time that that's what will occur. But you've got this overwhelming push from a a uh, sustainability and climate perspective that meat is at the heart of why we're in this mess today, and uh, and that is just slowly conditioning people and people. Yeah largely by nature are fairly compliant so if you if your if your messaging is that constantly from from dietitians from doctors from climate scientists from public health well we're up against it you know what i mean and i'll, I'll be yeah. low carb australia this october and this is what i'll talk about it's all very well to get up there and talk about low carbohydrate or high protein diets or what, whatever but really we've got to talk about what are the barriers? What are the barriers to access these type of diets? And there's a whole heap of them. And um, this, is, this is why it really, I think a health journey requires a person to really understand what's going on on this planet at the moment. And not all of those answers are pretty. Uh, some of those answers are, are pretty dark. It takes you to a pretty dark place. Uh, and people don't want that joke. And people, people got hard enough lives and just trying to pay a mortgage, raise kids, and to have this on board, it, it, it really, um, it, can, it can bring you down. So, confronting. But, yeah, it can be confronting. But, but at the same time, I, I think truth is, is very powerful. And I think you've um, got the ability to make some big changes to your life if you can understand the end game. Um, just a little example of how you can start to make a difference in your own community. Um, Someone told me the other day, I heard that all cattle in our local area is injected with hormones. And so even if they tell you it's grass fed, it's still no good for you and you shouldn't eat it, blah, blah, blah. So I went to my local butcher and I said, can I have a chat to you? And I said, look, I'm just wondering, is this true? You know, is the cattle injected with hormones? He said, my cattle is not definitely not injected with hormones. It's just out in the paddock. They eat the grass. We don't even give them any grain throughout their whole life. Um, they're only eating grass. And we had a really good chat. We talked about, you know, additives in things, like, you know, preservatives and all of that added to um, cured meats. He does his traditional cured bacon without any preservatives and nitrates you know we talked about all these things and he was willing to stop and have a chat about that of course you've got to find a good butcher who who will source those kind of things but just having that conversation can make them aware that people are interested in these things and do care and if you never have that conversation 
then the people that sell to you think, well, nobody cares, so why should I care about it? Um, and I think it's just important to start having those conversations, to know what's going on and start asking. Um, and even if you live in the city, you can at least, you know, start asking and looking around. There is definitely um, good places to source meat and vegetables in the city. Um, but, yeah, it's just I think people get a little bit overwhelmed with the whole idea of trying to find all the good things. But if you just start with one food and start working on the best options for that is that what you would suggest i think so joe i think again if we really simplify again like i'm really i'm a big fan of of just going back to first principles you take yeah. a animal like like a grass-fed grass-finished cow you generally end up with a leaner piece of food okay? yeah simple i mean there's fat there a lot of that fat contains a hell of a lot of nutrients like vitamin a and and, and, and a whole lot of minerals and, and healthy fats in there, omega-3s. Um, and you take an animal like a deer that's out thriving in the wild, you get a lean piece of meat, kangaroo, lean piece of meat, pork, mm. wild pork, lean piece of meat. But we human beings, we design more than that, right? Something with a higher fat content to us is more palatable. So mm. you get people paying $200 for a little bit of it, Kobe beef or something like that, which is heavily grain fed, heavily grain fed. Yeah. This animal is fundamentally an obese animal, right? Yeah. And and being bred that way through us brain feeding and giving it energy, you reduce the protein content in that piece of steak and you up the fat content. So again, it comes back down to consumer. You tell people to have grass fed finished beef and they say, oh, well, that's too lean for me, you know, or mm, oh, that's chewy. yeah, it's a bit chewy or it's too gamey for me or yeah. something like this. And again, it has to come down to consumer choice. This is why I'm really, I'm a big fan of educating people on that because um, you've got to, you've got to be responsible for your decisions. It's all very well to blame big food and big farmer and big government and so forth. But you, you, you know, you've got to be understanding what's going on to your system. So Grass-fed finished beef, which is not dependent on any grain, probably has a very low carbon footprint because mm -hmm. there's no bottom crop required to run that animal. In addition, we know that cattle are great sequesters of carbon. I'm not an expert on this, so I won't go into it, but we know a lot of these regeneratively run farms with animals that are just grazing and rotational grazing in particular yeah. tends to sequester carbon. So you really got an environmental solution there. So we should be supporting products like that. Uh, but, you know, you just look at what people desire. I mean, you go into any restaurant, the grass-fed option would probably be the least ordered uh, option yes. because it's it's just leaner and potentially more chewier. But, but that is what we should be supporting. People need to take some responsibility for that. We know when you grain feed an animal and if you excessively grain feed a cow, you can potentially kill it. It's called grain overload. Um, the, the omega profiles on the in the fat changes with more omega-6 and less omega-3. Um, in addition, you get more of a fat content to the animal. I'm not saying animal fat is bad, but I'm saying protein is the key and that's what we should be looking at. Uh, in addition, an animal fed, what it's supposed to eat generally does better. Yeah. So what um, can you tell us about the whole red meat causes cancer sure. idea? Yeah, no, that, that's a very common thing. So 2015, the World Health Organization sits down, panel of 22. Um, a lot of them have written for plant-based type advocacy. I think the 14 of them were pro-plant-based and they decided red meat causes cancer. Now they went in with a um, with a bit of an agenda, and I think they came out of it with the result that they wanted. So twenty two of that panel, uh, fourteen had very pro plant based views. They started off by trying to prove that processed meat causes cancer, and they came up with an increase in odds ratio of one point one eight. Okay, they said eating processed meat every day increases your risk of bowel cancer over your lifetime by 1.18. That's your absolute risk. Now, when you convert it to something called relative risk compared to those that, that don't eat that processed meat every day, their risk is one. The group that eats the processed red meat every day is 1.18. 
the relative risk is 1.18 uh, equals 18%. So the re relative risk is 18%. You tell someone that their risk goes up 18%, they go, oh, well, that's pretty significant. But let's look at it from a very simplistic perspective. They looked at people that ate processed meat every day. And you look at that sort of population, these are people that are eating a lot of things like burgers accompanied with fries and you know, milkshakes and pizzas and so forth. These are people not leading good, healthy lifestyles where they're focusing on whole foods. These are people probably consuming very, um, very processed food heavy diets. Um, so immediately you've got a bias, okay? Mm. So, but you take that out of the equation, somehow in, in 2015 in that same panel, they decided that red meat probably does it too. So processed meat increases it by 1.18 and they classified that a uh, group 1A carcinogen, which means it probably causes cancer. Um, and they did a hit job on non-processed red meat, even though that wasn't their intention. They went in looking at processed meat. They came out with the conclusion that red meat, unprocessed, like your whole food red meat, was probably a carcinogen as well. They classified that group 2A. So, so that wasn't even part of the study, but no, they just that wasn't part it of the there. intention. They they just wow. that, that conclusion. So that 1.18 is not included for whole food red meat, but the processed meats and red meats, non-processed, are lumped together by bodies like the Cancer Council and propagated to the population. We're taught to do meat-free Mondays. What does that mean? Um, you know, there's a big difference between eating a, a, a meat lover's pizza and sitting down to a grass-fed finished steak. Uh, yeah. and, and the crazy thing to me, Joe, is the same people that will tell you that they're worried about eating meat would have no qualms to sit down and eat a couple of bowls of, of processed pasta, you know, yeah. and having, you know. Breakfast cereal for dinner. That's right. And a bowl <laughs> of ice cream for dinner and some Tim Tams yeah. while they're watching Netflix, you know. It, yeah. it, it really blows the mind. And I, I'd, I'd like to see that all revisited. I'd like to yeah. see more objective evidence looked at. Even on that 2015 panel, they looked at 800 epidemiological studies. Epidemiology is the lowest quality evidence. They did not look at randomized control trials or systematic reviews. They looked at 800 studies. Of those 800 studies, 780 showed no association so they had to sit down and analyze 20 epidemiological studies to come to that increase in risk of 1.18. And then they got on red meat, okay? So I know this data very well. And as a gastroenterologist, I'm flabbergasted by the public health policy on this. Um, you know, questioning public health for a doctor is a, a death wish, um, you know, because our, our regulator, the APRA can come down on this. But I challenge us. To, 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 as a population, to really question where this data is coming from and is every, to, to, have, to have whole food red meat lumped in the same group as Roundup as probable carcinogens or cancer causing is a problem. Oh, the World Health Organization is comparing um, or putting red meat, unprocessed red meat, in the same category as Roundup and saying these are probably cancer causing group 2a uh that's probably With absolutely no evidence well just really weak circumstantial evidence that is not statistically sound so mm. let me put it this way to you joe you if you're a heavy smoker your lifetime risk of um, lung cancer is 25 times okay 2500 percent higher than someone who's a non-smoker if you're a heavy processed red meat eater your risk is 18% higher than someone who's a non-processed red meter. Right. right. That does put it into perspective, doesn't it? 2,500% versus 18%. And I'm not saying processed meat's great. I think processed no. meat should be really low down in your tier of foods because I'm not a big fan of processed meat. But to lump in well-raised animals um, mm. using good quality meat in the same category as processed meat is highly problematic and I think extremely flawed and I think is really poor quality science. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good to know. Thank you. Um, there's, there's also the sort of idea that 
any animal fats are no good for you. And you did mention, you know, that lean meat is great, and but animal fats are also good as in their natural form. Um, can you say anything about that sort of idea with fats being vilified these days? Yeah, sure. I, I think it's very simple. You take a grass-fed finished animal, look at the fat colour in a grass-fed finished animal, you'll generally have an orange tinge to the fat. Mm. That's the vitamin A precursor. So the fat is a matrix that's containing nutrients. Fat is also an energy uh, substrate. You know, we can utilise it as energy. Fat is also something that is a building block. Cholesterol can be a building block for things like hormones and so forth. Um, I think the focus has to be on protein because that's kind of a, 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 a our major building block. The amino acids are a major building block. And in sedentary populations, which we all are, Joe, we're not as active as we used mm. to 50 years ago or even in the pre-industrial revolution. So we've got to we've got to really take that into account that we 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 would, you know, we we're not moving as much as we should. So perhaps fat is something that we should judiciously use. I've always said for someone trying to lose weight, there's no prices for overeating fat, right? It really has to, the focus has to be on protein lower fats and potentially lower carbohydrates. Generally, the advantage of, of, of animal-based foods is, is if you're consuming a high-protein diet, generally that protein matrix will bring with it um, its fats and its cholesterols and so forth. Um, and I, I think we should be aiming, aiming for that type of model. Yeah, that's very sensible. One last question, um, the glyphosate question. Mm -hmm. So we've seen a lot um, lately with studies showing that glyphosate's in our urine, it's in our food systems, it's in pretty much everything now. Um, but they're still not quite getting rid of it. I hope they do. Um, can you just give us a little, I know when you were at the Nutrition Summit, you talked a bit about the whole glyphosate issue. So I'd love your, some input on this um, subject as well. Sure. I mean, glyphosate is probably going to be detectable in most of our urine now, most of Australia's urine. I'm pretty certain if you're extrapolating data from Europe and America. Yeah. It's not an issue. I mean, the Australian government website says it's not an issue. However, glyphosate is a known antibiotic. We know that it is a, it has an adverse effect on the bacteria and possibly the fungi within our soil. Now, why is that relevant to us? We know that bacteria and fungi in soil are important, you know, in terms of making sure that the plant is healthy. So if glyphosate is being administered in a high level, I think we destroy the microbiome within our soil. But then you think about it, if it's destroying the microbiome in our soil, what does it do to the microbiome within our gut, the trillions of microbiome that exist within our gut? Preliminary data starting to show that about 60% of our gut microbiome is, is, is sensitive to glyphosate. About 40% is resistant, 60% is sensitive. And all of this is a balance. So if you're continually consuming foods rich in glyphosate and it's totally detectable in you all the time, and then you're going to start over time having an effect on the gut microbiome. And as you're killing off some of these beneficial species, you get an overgrowth of species that that are resistant. Does that make sense? So you lose yeah. that beautiful equilibrium that exists in, in your gut, um, and and I think that over time leads to leads to disease. We know that the gut microbiome is important. We're not quite we don't quite understand how it links to disease, but we think the alteration in the gut microbiome leads to probable. Um, uh, dysbiosis, which leads to intestinal permeability, reduction in mu mu mucus production, reduced ability to break down fibres because we need a healthy microbiome to be able to break down plant fibres. This is no wonder to me that a lot of people struggle with plant fibres now and the blanket rule is that, well, fibres are bad for you. Well, that, that's not the case. As a human being, you must have the ability to break down fibre, right? And we, it's beneficial for us to break down fibre because we extract a, a beautiful ketone out of that, which is a fuel for our brain and heart and lungs and so uh, uh, brain, heart and liver and so forth. But a lot of people have lost that ability. Why is that? I think the microbiome is completely under threat. 
And I think mm-hmm. glyphosate is a big player in this. And uh, I think we need more research. I think we need to understand the role it plays. But glyphosate is owned by a drug company. Bayer own that. And uh, Bayer, for Bayer, it's been a very profitable um, acquisition <laughs> from them as they bought it from Monsanto. Um, and and the data around glyphosate is often very quickly shut down and, and, and said that, well, it's safe to utilise, but because because you know glyphosate blocks something called the shikimate pathway and the argument is that humans don't have that shikimate pathway in our cells that's true but as i said 60 percent of our gut microbiome does what are we doing to our gut microbiome that's a question you know you got people eating these foods soaked in glyphosate and then and then consuming probiotics and prebiotics to say well we're doing good by our gut that that's kind of a um i think that that is a um that's problematic. I don't think it quite works that way. Yeah. So if the cattle that we're eating are eating grass that's been sprayed with glyphosate, will we um, get that through the meat? Yeah, really like- interesting question, Joe. Yeah, but my preliminary um, analysis is that, no, glyphosate doesn't accumulate in, in animal-based foods, and I think that's one big That's win. good to know. Yeah, that's one, one big win um, for yeah. us. Animals seem to, like us, urinate it out. I don't think there's any evidence that we accumulate it in our tissues per se. As I said, it, it has an effect on our gut microbiome, but a lot of it we we are excreting in our urine. And I think the animals do the same. Does it affect the gut microbiome of the animal? Maybe. Maybe that this animal comes out less healthy. Um, in addition, if it's grazing in glyphosate-soaked pastures and plant lands, I think there's just less nutrients in in the plants because yeah. we have glyphosate chelates and and um and and holds on to a lot of the nutrients in the soil and as we discussed discussed um uh, earlier that it destroys the microbiome which means that you just get a less nutritious plant animal eating a less nutritious plant means that the the tissue sequesters less nutrients um it's just a a cycle of loss of nutrients really um so i yeah. think if you can find animals that are in 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 pastures that are not uh, treated with glyphosate, I think we just end up with a healthier animal. Yeah. So to sort of wrap it up a little, would you say for those who are worried about um, eating meat that is not perfect, you know, like it may not be certified organic, um, would you say it, it's still better to have some meat that's not um, certified organic than to have none at all? Absolutely. I think meat is a critical part of our diet. It's something that we culturally, we enjoy, we value it. Um, is it possible to get all your amino acids through the plant-based way? Yes. Um, especially if you're getting eating plants that are in nutrient-rich soils that are not treated with these pesticides. Well, as we know, a lot of these plants and grains and fruits are now. They're treated very heavily, which is an issue. But you, you say you theoretically wanted to achieve this through plants. Yes, absolutely. But you just need to be smarter about it. You need to combine various plant sources to make sure that you're getting the essential amino acid profile. We also know a lot of plants carry anti-nutrients, which means that you don't absorb everything that you're eating. Additionally, we know that you have to increase your calorie intake to be able to consume the same amount of nutrients as you do from plant food. So obviously you end up overeating energy sometimes in those cases. Plant food is not necessarily as palatable as animal-based foods for a lot of people. So you've got to add in these additives that are sources and high in carbohydrate and high in fat. So you just end up with this issue where you're just overdoing energy. I think I think it, it makes sense to eat animal-based foods because it, it it's not just about amino acids. It's about B12, it's about iron, it's about choline, it's about a whole heap of nutrients that are found in these, in these things. And I think vast majority of the world um, a starb of animal protein, and you just need to look at places like India and Africa to know that these sort of places don't don't do well in terms of health. Their diabetes presentations are extremely dramatic, um, and and at an earlier stage, and mortality and morbidity from type two diabetes in places like India, which is a very heavily plant based nation, is is very high. So plant based eating is a is a good way to do it. You've got to question why is India's health. Um, so poor. So um, I think people just need to be sensible about it. And I think we as human beings, we're definitely designed and evolved to consume meat. Uh, it's just about, well, where is it coming from? We're definitely built to consume plants and fruits and tubers and, and grains. Even the grains, we, we can consume it because we can use things like grinding and pounding and so forth to access the 
energy in it. It's just about making sure that it's not subject to this chemical-based agriculture that we find ourselves in. Additionally, we've got things like food out of season where foods are being flown in from different mm -hmm. countries, and, that, and that's not great. So I think we've just got to really take it back to very simple principles, which is seasonal eating, what is available to me now, make it as unprocessed as possible. And remember, it is not about being plant-based or being animal-based. It's just about nutrients. And at the end of the day, as long as we can hit those nutrient targets, uh, vitamins, minerals, amino acids, our fats, um, I think we're going to do well. Yeah. Having a balance, wide variety, keeping the microbiome healthy. And at the same time, you can actually be helping the planet um, and not need to, if you're getting your um, food from farming practices that are helping the planet, like agriculture that is regenerative, um, you can really rest assured that you're doing the right thing for your body and for the planet. Absolutely, um, Joe. And, and look, I'd just like to remind everyone that this theory that our planet's ending is not a new mm -hmm. thing. This has been a recurring theme through Aristotle and Plato, Plato's Rome, through through uh, Thomas Malthus uh, 200 years ago, Paul Elrich 50 years ago, and now we've got the same now um, where people have been predicting the doom of the planet. Uh, the planet will be fine and the planet will be there well after we're gone from it. And um, I think it's, it's just really, for us, we, we have to just become very objective, um, very focused on what needs to happen, and I think question some of the narratives that are going on um, because you, you, you've fundamentally got people that are the, that are the ruling class making, making decisions for you. Um, really, you're losing your autonomy there. But So it's really on you to educate yourselves um, yeah. and make, make good decisions. Do, do your research. <laughs> Get out yeah. there and read and ask questions. Be curious. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. But, but you know, a lot of this stuff is confrontational for people. I mean, I, I put out a lot of content around it, um, yeah. you know, and I, I just noticed um, just on my, not that I track profiles, but I lose followers by the thousands every month because <laughs> I suspect, one, I'm incessant about my postings, I get that, but but it's very confrontational uh, for, for people to, they'd rather to see a video clip uh, that's easy to digest or something like this, rather than digest content that, that you have to think about, critically analyze, and then potentially feel uh, a little bit, yeah, a bit, bit uncomfortable about. I think, I think um, we've lost that ability to be resilient and that, that, that to me is problematic. Yeah, good point. Well, thank you so much for making us think today because we all need that. So what's your website again? Um, it's centre for gastrointestinalhealth.com.au. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm sort of active across fairly few platforms, uh, quite a number of platforms, including Twitter and Facebook and stuff. So let's see how it all goes, Joe. Yep. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. We really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thanks again.